All right, so uh, thank you. Welcome, everyone. Um, so we are in the middle of Sukkot, Mordim with Simcha. And um, I thought it would be a, a good thing to just to reflect uh, together with you on the ending of Sukkot. And Sukkot actually is an eight-day holiday. The first seven days we call Sukkot, the eighth day is Shmini Hatzeret. Uh, of course, outside the land of Israel, we observe two days, Shemini Yatzeret, so we have second day of Shemini Yatzeret, which we call Simchat Torah. And uh, on Simchat Torah, it's actually interesting, in, in Israel, of course, Shemini Yatzeret is also Simchat Torah. It, it's a day which uh, we complete reading the Torah, say Yizkor in the Ashkenazic tradition, Geshem, and in Chutzlaretz, uh, we actually split Shmini Atzeret into two days, and they're two very different days. Shmini Atzeret itself, as observed in Chutzlaretz, is a solemn day. It's a day of joy, but it has a solemn side to it. Geshem is a serious prayer, uh, thinking about Parnassah for the coming year. And uh, on Simchat Torah, it's a day of joy. We focus more on the joy, on the completion of the Torah, etc. I always felt when I was in Israel for Simchat Torah, for Shemini Atzeret, I always felt it's the one holiday actually that we do better in Chutzlaretz than in the land of Israel, because it's very hard if you grow up outside Israel to, to have these two experiences come together. I find it very difficult. In any event, uh, so the custom is that on Simchat Torah, we are completing the reading of the Torah. Um, we read the Torah. Our practice is to complete the Torah each year. It's the traditional practice. Of course, in ancient Israel, they completed it twice in seven years. But we complete it every year, those who complete the Torah in one year cycles. And we are completing reading the Torah on Simchat Torah, Shishmini Yatzeret. So it's the only Torah reading that we have as part of the Seder, the order of reading, which is not on uh, on Shabbat. Generally speaking, of course, we know that we complete the Torah's readings on Shabbat. There's a holiday that interrupts the reading. We read something else. But on Simchat Torah, we are completing the Torah. And we also start the Torah. We start over again with Breshit. And those are two very, should be, in my view, very serious moments. The idea of actually completing the Torah, it's an awesome idea. and. Uh, it is uh, it's very special. So I thought to briefly begin with a reflection upon endings, upon completing uh, pieces of the Torah. Torah, of course, is five chumashim. In each one's ending is very striking. The ending of Sefer Breshit, essentially, of course, we end Breshit with being ensconced in the land of Egypt. The last word of the book is Mitzrayim. But just prior to that, we have Yaakov blessing all of his sons. And in that respect, the ending of Sefer Breshit and the ending of Sefer Dvarim, ending of the Torah, are parallels. They have much in common. We'll get back to that later to think a little bit about um, these two endings. We end with blessings. We end Breshit with blessings. Even as we're in Mitzrayim, we end the Torah with blessings in Sefer Dvarim. It's interesting to think about the endings of the other three books. So four of the books actually have narratives. 
In other words, the book of Vayikra, I would put aside for our purposes. That's an interesting ending. But leaving Vayikra out, the book of Shemot, which of course is a continuation of Sefer Breshit, so we end there with the construction of the, uh, of the, uh, of the, of the, of the Mishkan. And the Mishkan is, in the Chumash, clearly a culmination, a completion of, of the creation narratives of Breshit. It literally plays off both of them. One might say that the book of Breshit ends in one place, but the story of Breshit continues through Sefer Shemot. And the completion of the two books is the construction of the Mishkan. It's a, a glorious ending. In contrast to Breshit, which ended in Mitzrayim, the book of Shemot, the book of redemption, ends with the building of the Mishkan, creating a space for God to dwell together with us. The book of Bamidbar has a very interesting ending. The book of Bamidbar, if you recall, ends with a complaint by the tribe of Menashe. The tribe of Menashe uh, complains that early in the book of Bamidbar, the daughters of Tzulafchad had uh, petitioned Moshe on behalf of their father. Their father died, had no sons, and the um, Daughters of Tzulafchad said, Why should our father's portion be lost? We should be the inheritors of our father's portion. That was their argument with Moshe. Apparently, the, the uh, presumption is that, that the women do not inherit their father. Moshe turns to God. It's in chapter 27 of Bamidbar. And God says to Moshe, yes, the rule will be that from now on, uh, if there are no sons, the daughter can inherit. That's chapter 27. The last chapter of the book, the ending of Sefer Bamidbar, uh, ends with a sequel to the story. There it says that the tribes of Menashe came to, um, came to Moshe and they complained that it's very lovely that the daughters of Tzulavchad uh, can inherit their father's portion but the claim is that if they marry somebody from a different tribe, that the land that they inherited from their father will transfer to the husband, who may well be from a different tribe. And therefore, they say, why should we, namely the tribe of Menashe, lose? Why should we lose out? And it's interesting that they use the same language, the Torah uses the same language that they had used in advancing their argument. And the tribe of Menashe uses the same language to argue with Moshe that this should not be permitted. So Moshe is faced with a quandary, what to do in this situation. And the solution in that particular instance is that they can marry. They should only marry somebody from their own tribe. So the tribe will not lose some of its uh, inheritance, some of its land. And what's interesting is when you read, that's the last story of Sefer Bamidba. And when you read that story, and you look at it carefully, which we should always do, obviously, you notice something very interesting about the language of that story, which is that three times in the beginning of that chapter, chapter 36, the Torah talk of the tribe of Menashe talks about losing land, but three times also a different word appears, which is the word that their argument is that not only our land will lose, our tribe will lose land, 
But if in Nachwatan, whomever, whoever will marry the daughter of Tulafchad, the five daughters, that tribe will gain land. So they seem to be disturbed about two things. They're going to lose, but they're also very disturbed that the other tribes are going to benefit, are going to gain, have more, but no saf. And it's interesting that in chapter 36, when, when the Chumash introduces us to Benashe, it talks about that they say it traces the people back to the tribe of Menashe, Menashe ben Yosef, and it traces Menashe back to Yosef. And Yosef, of course, Benosaf, three times then we have Yosef, Benosaf, Benosva, three times Nigra, Yigara. So they seem to be bothered by not just that they're going to lose, but the others are going to gain. And this dispute between the tribes, one might say dispute between the tribes that see themselves as losing, and they're equally disturbed apparently by the fact that the other tribes will gain, the Nosaf, takes us back, of course, to the very ending of Sefer Breshit. Because Sefer Breshit actually does not end with the blessings of Yaakov to his sons. But Sefer Breshit ends with a different story, which is that the, the brothers, after the death of Yaakov, are afraid that Yosef will take vengeance upon them. And in fact, Yosef will, uh, will uh, kill them. They're concerned that Yosef, after their father has died, will in fact kill them. And they go to Yosef and they say that our father uh, requested that you forgive us and we'll be, we will be your slaves. So they're offering themselves as slaves, presuming that, presumably they're concerned about a worse fate. Yosef cries and says, that was not my intention, I'm not God. After I die, take my bones back with you, we'll be united after my death. That's Yosef. So the point is that Sefer Breshit actually ends with the dispute between Yosef and his brothers, which is not fully resolved, obviously, in the minds of the brothers. They still suspect Yosef. And Yosef pacifies them and says, no, this is not my intention. I, I'm not God. I can't play God. Even though he seems to have been playing God all along, but okay, I'm not God. And Moshe finds a way to resolve the conflict. The resolution is they can marry, they can inherit, but they can't marry from a different tribe. So that's Moshe's way of, of allaying the fears of Menashe. It's Moshe's way of allowing people to, to live together, and that is compromise on all sides. So what's interesting that the ending of Sefer Bamidbar recalls the ending of Sefer Breshit, and the ending of Sefer Devarim, which of course ends with the blessings, also recalls the end of Sefer Breshit, the blessings of Yaakov to his sons, which is chapter 49, the story of Yosef and his brothers, which is chapter, which is chapter 50, and the dispute between them. And this is a dispute, a tension that's never fully resolved throughout the Bible. We should never forget that the division of the people of Israel, the tribes that are divided in the book of Mulachim, is along the lines of Yehuda on one side and Yosef on the others. So the, 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 the fault lines are clear, and the tension is clear. And the question is, given that reality, can we find a way to live together? Can we live together with our differences, with our disputes, with our uh, perhaps our anger? 
and find a way, find a path to live together. And the end of Breshit suggests that we can find a way. And Yaakov actually is instrumental in finding a way. So what Yaakov was able to do, and Yaakov's mission that he accepts at the end of his life, is to bring the is, is to fully build the family. Yaakov's vision, of course, we recall, was to build a family. He calls it a bayit, and he takes a vow: "If I come back, if you bring me back in peace to my house, as Yaakov, in chapter twenty-eight of Breshit, then I will build. You will be my God. For Yahashem li Elohim, and this place shall become Beitel. But ya- Yaakov means by that, presumably." You're the God of my father and the God of Isaac and the God of Abraham. So in that sense, you're my God. But if you give me the opportunity, you'll be my God in the sense, in a way that's different from anybody else. Because no one else can build the, the, the inclusive structure. Avram couldn't do it. He chooses one son, but one son is chosen. And Yitzchak has one covenantal son. And Yaakov's vision, dream, is to build a community where everybody has a place. Everybody has a place. And Yaakov's able to do that, but there's a missing piece at the end of Sefer Breshit. And the missing piece is uh, Yosef, because Yosef is in Mitzrayim. And when Yaakov is sent down to Mitzrayim, not just to meet Yosef, because he could have met Yosef and gone back home. But God instructs Yaakov in chapter 46, Yosef, Yoshit, Yodo, you're not coming back right away. You will be there till you die. And your mission is not to simply meet your son. Your mission is to include your son. And Yaakov finds a way to include Yosef, who's the viceroy of Egypt, who meets him with his chariot, who has these two children who are Egyptian children. And Yaakov finds a way, actually, to include Yosef. The way he includes Yosef in the Chumash is by bringing Yosef back through Yosef's children. There is no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of Menashe and the tribe of Ephraim. But through the children, who have no animosity, uh, born towards them by the brothers, and they presumably no bear animosity towards their uncles. So Yaakov finds this way to build the bayat, to include everybody, and to bless all of his 12 sons. They don't all get the same blessing. Someone might say it's a more of a critique than a blessing, but it's a blessing because they're all included. Shnei Masar says the Torah, these are Jacob's sons, they're all part of the family. So Yaakov is able to include everybody. He found a way to include everybody. And at the end of the day, Yosef does not kill his brothers. Yosef, on the contrary, says to his brothers, someday we'll be fully reunited back in the land, which is what happens. The tensions are always there, but they are reunited. When it comes to Zotah Bracha, it's interesting that in Zotah Bracha, it's also about not Moshe not only giving blessings to the to the tribes, which he does, but I think in the Chumash, in the reading of Bezotah Bracha, it's interesting that the, actually the language of Bezotah Bracha is very difficult. The introduction is extremely difficult. What, some of the more diff, most difficult passages in the Torah, but what I think is clear, without getting to the specific words that the introduction to Moshe's blessing to the people, the verse that precedes Moshe blessing the individual tribes, is Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, Morasha Kihilat Yaakov. Moshe commanded 
us to observe the Torah, Morasha, an inheritance, and the Torah calls the people of Israel Kihilat Yaakov, the congregation of Jacob, Kihilat Yaakov. And I'm reflecting on that term, which is, in the, which is the introduction to the blessings. It reminds us of something very interesting about the book of Devarim, in which the Zot HaBracha, of course, is the conclusion. And uh, it's that Sefer Devarim places a tremendous emphasis on the event of uh, receiving the Torah. There's a great emphasis on Kabbalat HaTorah and Sefer Dvarim. And that, by the way, may seem self-evident to everybody, but it's far from the case. When one reads the rest of Tanakh and reads histories, for example, there are Psalms that are sort of histories of the Jews, um, several Psalms. And what is quite interesting is that, for the most part, Matan Torah is, is barely mentioned at all. The, the, psalm, the psalmist has skipped over Matan Torah. We, we grew up with the idea that Matan Torah is the central event. And of course, it is a, a central event for sure. Whether it's the central event, Rashi thought so, the Ramban didn't. Though he attached great importance to it, obviously. But in Sefer Dvarim, the revelation of Sinai is central. And the Torah had a, a, a term for the revelation of Sinai, for the day that we receive the Torah. More than once, the Torah has a term. It calls it Yom HaKahal, the day of the congregation, Yom HaKahal. And even more than that, what is equally interesting is that towards the very end of, the, of Sefer Devarim, in chapter 31, book has 34 chapters, in chapter 31, the Torah commands us that every seven years on the holiday of Sukkot, which we presently observe, all of Israel comes, all of Israel, it says, even though the Torah and Devarim spoke earlier about pilgrimages to the temple three times a year. But the Torah singles out, all of Israel comes to appear before God, you should read the Torah. Gather the people, gather the, congregate the people, men, women, and children. It's actually very interesting that earlier in the Torah, when the Torah spoke about the pilgrimage, the thrice a year pilgrimage to Yerusha, to uh, the place that God chooses, so the Torah said, all the males shall appear. It emphasizes the men. But when it comes to the, the festival of Sukkot, every seven years, Hakel, and on that festival, we are to hear the Torah being read. And the commentaries understood this at Pshat as a kind of mini Sinai, as a kind of revelation of Sinai, which we observe every seven years. And there is the Vokal Yisrael, the men, the women, and the children, everybody's coming. This is Yom HaKahal, it's, 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 it's the inclusive holiday, which takes place on Sukkot. Sukkot is the inclusive holiday. Maybe if we have time, we'll discuss that a little bit, why Dafka Sukkot is the inclusive holiday. But the Torah has a mitzvah. Torah speaks of, in Dvarim, Yom HaKahal, 
that we are never to forget that event. The Torah warned us in the beginning of Sefer Devarim not to forget what we saw at, 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 at Sinai. Yom HaKahal. And then every seven years we are to re-experience that day of HaKel. And just before Moshe is about to bless the people, in Zotah Bracha, in the culmination of the book, the preceding verses, Torah Tzivolanu Moshe, Morasha Kiyuati HaKol. So the point then, perhaps, is that Moshe blesses the individual tribes. But the point of the blessing of the individual tribes is, it's not just about the individual tribes. It's seeing each one of these tribes as part of a whole, as part of a, a, a larger community. So Moshe may single out the tribes. On one hand, it's a blessing of the tribes, but at its core, it's a blessing of Kiyot Yaakov. It's a blessing of, 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 of all the tribes together as one. And throughout the Torah, of course, we know there's been a tension between the individual tribes on one hand and the community on the other hand. The institution that actually in the Torah uh, represents the community is uh, the uh, temple, is the Mishkan. The Mishkan is the Mishkan for everybody. Everybody goes there. So it is, um, it's appropriate that the uh, holiday of Sukkot actually, the holiday of Sukkot represents this idea of um, the idea of the entire community. Because the, Suk- the Sukkot is the, basically the Mishkan, the festival of the temple, and the temple is that which represents, which is part of, everybody's connected to the temple, separate from the individual tribes. So at the end of the Torah, actually, we have a beautiful ending where we are, Moshe chooses to bless the individual tribes on one hand, but we recall that we are one congregation, and the book of Devarim, what makes us one congregation, basically, fundamentally, in Sefer Devarim, I would argue, is certainly a piece of it, is this idea that we are a people who are connected to, 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 to this revelation, to God's Torah, to Yom HaKahal, to HaKel. So that's how Zotah Bracha begins. In fact, that's the very beginning of Zotah Bracha. Hashem mi Sinai Ba. It mentions Sinai in the very beginning, and then the preceding verses, Torah Tzivolana Moshe, so that's what I wanted to say in terms of uh, the endings, actually. Very striking endings. So there's an ending of the blessings and the ending of the temple in the second book. And then the fourth book is the ending of finding a way for people to somehow connect to each other, not to separate, finding a way for Joseph and the brothers to see themselves as part of a larger people. And then, of course, in Zotah Bracha, once again, Moshe blesses the tribes, but he precedes it by emphasizing, and the Torah emphasizes, there may be individual tribes, but it's one kahal, it's one people, kiwat Yaakov. Okay, that's the first thing I wanted to mention. Uh, let me pause for a moment. If anybody has any comments or questions or whatever, I'd be happy to hear that. And uh, then we'll proceed to part two. I'd like to say something. Can you hear me? Sure. Yeah, hi. Uh, hi. I, I think it's interesting that 
in the brachot, the so-called brachot in Sefer Breshit, you have some, as you pointed out, some non-brachot. Not everybody gets a, a wonderful blessing. There's some criticism and, and some uh, sort of negative statements there, but in Moshe's brachot, they are all positive. So you could see that as a kind of uh, tikkun, in a way, or progress from the original brachot of Yaakov to the ultimate brachot of Moshe. Right, so I think that's a very interesting point. I was going to actually address that a little later, so I'll just make one comment about, about what, uh, what you said. And that is that it is interesting that for whatever reason, when the Torah speaks of the various tribes, there are always 12, whatever the reason for that may be. And you can arrive at 12 because remember that Yosef is two tribes, Benashe and Ephraim, so they're really 13. So you want to get to 12, somebody's got to drop out. Sometimes it's Levi that drops out. Maybe it's Joseph can be seen sometimes as one. The national Ephraim can be seen as one. But in Zot HaBracha, actually, we get to the number 12 in a different way. We get to the number 12 because one of the tribes does not receive a blessing at all, ostensibly. And that is the tribe of Shimon. Shimon actually is not mentioned. Now, why is Shimon not mentioned? So I would say two things about Shimon not being mentioned, which relates to the point that you just made. Shimon, and this was the, actually segue into the larger point I wanted to make, but if other people want to say something, I'm happy to hear it. And that is that Shimon, in the in terms of the desert experience, the tribe of Shimon is very problematic. And the reason the tribe of Shimon is problematic is because of the event that's described towards the end of Sefer Bamidbar of, 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 of Baal Pa'ar. The incident of Baal Pa'ar, which is chapter 25 of Bamidbar, where Israel gets involved with the daughters of Moab, Midian and Moab, and um, they begin to uh, get involved with Pa'ar, which is the, uh, which is the god of Moab. Um, and um, there, the main culprit, actually, is the head of the tribe of Shimon, the head of Shimon. So it's, uh, and that is a particularly serious business. I'll just for a moment uh, reflect on why that's such a serious crime. It's a serious crime because this crime of Baal Pa'ar, which takes place in chapter 25 of Bamidbar, is, um, is the crime of the second generation. There, there are two great sins of Israel in the desert. The first is the golden calf, and the second sin is that of the scouts or the spies. God's response in each case is to be very angry, to threaten destruction of the people. Moshe intercedes on our behalf in each case. God is calm, calms down. There, is, there are consequences. But Israel survives. In the second case, in the Miraglim, the Miraglim, God says, they'll survive, but they can't possess the land. They don't want to possess the land. It's going to take another generation. Each of those two cases, by the way, of the, of the um, Egel and the Miraglim, Moshe in each case prays for the people. 
And in each case, when Moshe employs in his prayer for the people, are the Yud Gimel Midot, Shem Hashem Karachem V'chanun, or a form of the Yud Gimel Midot. The Yom Kippur service, by the way, uses both of those formulations of Moshe in the most interesting way. Can't get into that now. But that's, those are the great crimes of generation one. Now, what are the crimes of generation two? Generation two is going to possess the land, so they are presumably better than generation one. But the interesting issue is that generation two is actually guilty of, of, the, of, of similar crimes. Baal of course, is quite parallel to the story of the golden calf. Tavod Zara. It doesn't start as Avod Zara, but it becomes Avod Zara. It's a very serious crime, and it's the second generation, crime of the second generation. That's the Ego. That's the secret. Ego 2, we could call it. And then you have the Miraglim story. And by the way, the reader knows. When you read that Baal Pa'or story, you know that Miraglim 2 is on the horizon. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it's got to happen, because that's how the Chumash is set up. So you keep reading 26, 27, 28, getting close to the end. There's no way, there's no Muragrim too, until you come to chapter 32. That's the story of B'nai God and B'nai Ruve, who don't want to cross over into the land. And they'd say to Moshe, listen, the grass is greener on this side, but we don't want to cross over. And uh, Moshe gets very angry with them. You're doing what your, what, what your parents did. When I sent them from Kodesh Barnea to scatter out the land. And they came back and they dissuaded the people from possessing the land. You're the same as, as your ancestors. What ancestors? The Moravim. So you jump for joy. You expected it. You know it's got to be coming. So the difference between the two generations is not the same. People are sinful people. People always sin. People make mistakes, and usually they make the same mistakes many times over. That's not the issue. The issue is how you respond to the mistakes. The issue is what do you make of it? How do you deal with it? And there are the differences. When you're studying the book of Bar-Midbar, what you're looking for is how is it dealt with afterwards? What is the difference with the response in Bar-Midbar and the response in Shmot? Pinchas, after all, who's the hero of Ego II, is Aaron's grandson, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Akoen. So what you're looking for are a set of distinctions between the two stories. So Egil too is extremely serious crime, and the instigator of Egil too is none other than the tribe of Shimon. And in fact, it's Pinchas who kills Zimri. It's a levy that kills Shimon, thereby fulfilling perhaps Yaakov's point in his condemnation or criticism of Shimon and Levi that they can't be together. So the division of Shimon and Levi, which is accentuated in Rizot HaBracha, because in Moshe's blessings, as we'll see soon, Levi occupies a very prominent place. Shimon's not mentioned at all. So I would say in response to what Ruth is saying, that um, when Moshe has nothing good to say, he says nothing. He doesn't criticize Shimon. He says nothing at all. But I do believe, actually, and actually after I thought about this, I saw it someplace or other. I can't remember where I saw this, the same suggestion. 
that actually there's an intimation in Moshe's blessings that Shimon is included. Because if you think about the Tanakh and the role of Shimon, tribe of Shimon in the Tanakh, it would appear that the tribe of Shimon in one form or another becomes absorbed into Shevet Yehuda, the beginning of Shoftim. Who's gonna, who's, who's gonna go and fight? Who's gonna lead the fight? Yehuda Yahweh. And Yehuda says to Shimon, help me. So Shimon essentially becomes, is seen as related to the tribe of Yehuda. And it is interesting that in Moshe's blessing for Yehuda, which is one verse long, how does it begin? Shema Hashem kol Yehuda. There's even an intimation, Shema, Shimon. Shema Hashem kol Yehuda. The blessing is to Judah, but maybe a piece of the blessing to Judah is transmitted to Shimon. So it is certainly the case that, but, but the point that was made is, of course, the case. Moshe doesn't have any, there, there are no criticisms in, in, in the Zot Bracha. It's all sweetness and light. And what makes it even more astonishing, actually, is that when you read the book of Devarim, one thing we can certainly say about Sefer Devarim is, it is not sweetness and light. It contains a severe critique and a prophecy about the future, about God's hiddenness, as a tochacha, which goes on and on, seems to never end. And it, it, the warning is very stark and clear about what is going to happen in Moshe's concern after he's gone, what will happen to the people. Moshe spares no, no criticism in the book of Devarim. When you get to the end of the last chapter though, in Vizota Bracha, is the sweetest blessing. So that point is, is, is an important point and, and very well taken, and really accentuates the fact that we want to end with blessings. We want to end with blessings, we want to end the year with blessings. Uh, I'll get back to that at the very end. So that, that's actually a very important point. Um, okay, so let me just uh, say a couple more words about... Rabbi Silver? Yes. Sorry, there was another question in the chat yes. that was sent by Gershon. He, he asked, is Arpa attracted to Valpaor, so hence her name and her return to Moab? Um, I don't know. I always thought of Arpa more as the Oref, as the neck. When someone turns back, you see the back of their neck. It's possible. I don't really know whether, whether, whether we play with that. The truth of the matter is that in the book of Ruth, there are no real negative characters in the Book of Ruth. Arpa is not so much negative, she's not beyond. Now, the, 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 there are two kinds of characters in Ruth. There are the, your standard person, maybe even a decent person. Remember, the Arpa starts walking with, 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 with Naomi, doesn't desert Naomi. Naomi says, go home, go home, go home. She goes home. But she's willing to sacrifice and go with Naomi. Ruth is be above and beyond. The Boaz is above and beyond at the end of the day, takes the extra steps. So I, I'm not sure that there's a critique of ARPA, but it's certainly not impossible. I have to think about that. I haven't thought of it, but uh, ARPA and possibly, I don't know. Um, okay, let me get back to the Zota Bracha and the practice we have to finish it on the holiday of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Sukkot. Let me make one point about the blessings of Yaakov's blessings and the blessings of Moshe. And that is that when you think about the tribes and which tribes are 
emphasized as being central. Who, who get the main blessings? So when, in terms of Yaakov's blessings, obviously there are two tribes that have the main blessings, who are the two main characters amongst Yaakov's children, the two main characters. One is Yosef, obviously. He gets a big blessing. The other is, of course, uh, Yehuda, who plays the pivotal role in Sefer Breshit. He's the one who brings, he, he brings the family together. Story of Yehuda and Tamar, the acceptance of responsibility of the Eravon, a lesson taught to him by this mysterious Tamar, Yehuda's Rebbe. And then Yehuda puts that into practice later, when he himself becomes the Arev. He's willing to sacrifice himself to take responsibility for, the, for his brother, or his half-brother, if you want to call it, namely Joseph's brother, Benjamin. Yaakov is reluctant to send Binyamin back to Mitzrayim. And Yehuda says to Yaakov, Anochi Erevenu. And in saying Anochi Erevenu, I'll take responsibility. And in point of fact, what happens is that he does take responsibility. Yosef plants a goblet in Binyamin's sack, and, and Yosef, uh, you know, whatever Yosef's motive is, presumably to keep Binyamin with him. Maybe he thinks he's protecting Binyamin. He sees Binyamin as one that his father favors. And Yosef knows what happened to Yosef, who was favored. So he's going to send the brothers back to Yaakov and take care of his own brother, Binyamin. And Yehuda steps forward and says, you can't do that because our father can't live without, can't live without, uh, without, without, without Binyamin. He'll die. So he's going to become the Evid, the slave. The slave becomes the king. Yehud is the leader of the brothers. Yosef reveals his identity. The family is now a full family. Yosef is included. There's some kind of reconciliation. So in the blessings of Yaakov to his sons, the two that are highlighted are the two main characters. One is Yosef and the other is Yehuda, and that makes perfect sense. No one else is left, no one's left out. But the highlighted brothers are the brothers who are uh, primary in the, in, the, in the narrative. And in point of fact, even more than that, I would say that the blessings or non-blessings, if you want to call it a non-blessing, is a critique of Shimon and Levi, is a critique of Reuven, the first three sons of Yaakov, when he's going to tell them what will happen in the end of days, they are critiqued. Reuven is stripped of, his, of the right of the, of the firstborn. Shimon and Levi are critiqued, and Yaakov says have to be divided. But they are included. These are the 12 sons, says the Torah, each, each according to his blessing. But the reason Reuven is, is stripped of the birthright, Yaakov says why. Yaakov says that he mentions specifically the incident with Bilhah, that Reuven sleeps with Bilhah. But it's more than that when you read the book of Breshit. So you uh, understand that Reuven's judgment is problematic. He may be well-intentioned, but he's problematic. He's not really a leader. He doesn't know how to take responsibility. He says to his father in the very Benjamin story where Yehuda says, take me, I'll be the Arev. So, so, you, so uh, Reuben said to Jacob, Father, give him to me, give Benjamin to me. If I don't bring him back, at Shnei Bonai Tamid, you can kill my two sons. 
So Yaakov doesn't even respond. I don't think killing his two grandchildren is what Yaakov has in mind. But what Yeruvain might have said is, you can take me. I'm responsible. what Yehuda says. I'm responsible. So Reuven doesn't know how to take responsibility. He's demonstrated that in the narratives of Sefer Breshit. So Yaakov responds to Yehuda, to Reuven, in keeping with what Reuven has demonstrated in the book of Breshit. Shimon and Levi, story of Shechem. They're probably the primary brothers who conspired to kill Yosef. So Yaakov responds in kind. Yehuda took responsibility. Yosef was the one who protected the family. Mitzrayim, etc., the talented son. He kept his identity in Egypt. So Yaakov is responding. So the blessings of Yaakov are responses to what happened prior. That's the jumping off point for Yaakov. And the same thing can be said, I think, and that's the point that was made earlier, which I embellished a bit. Uh, the same thing can be said for Moshe's blessings. Moshe doesn't mention Shimon at all. If Shimon is mentioned, it is only through Yehuda. And the, the one, the tribes that Moshe singles out as having the primary blessings, I would say a two plus one. The two primary ones are number one, Levi. Levi has a big, big play in Vizot Abracha. And of course, the tribe of Levi is the tribe. If Shimon is being passed over in the sense because of Egil II, the tribe of Levi were the heroes of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Egil I. They were the ones who remained steadfast. They were the ones who joined with Moshe, Hashem, Eli. So Moshe recognizes that and gives Levi a very central blessing in Vizot HaBracha, because it's reflective of the, of the experience in, in the desert. Levi has a major blessing, and the other is Yosef. Yosef gets a major, Yosef's the other tribe who is singled out, most prominent in the blessings of Moshe and Vizot HaBracha. And uh, that also makes sense if you think about it. Because if you think about the role of Yosef, Yosef is actually two. And Ephraim and Menashe, apparently in Moshe's thinking, as he blesses the tribes, they have, each of those two, plays a central role in the desert experience, as far as Moshe is concerned. Ephraim, of course, that's, uh, that's Moshe's disciple. Moshe's faithful disciple. And the one who's going to lead in the future is the Yoshua bin Nun. He's from Ephraim. So Ephraim, and he will be significant not only in terms of the past, that he was faithful to Moshe, Moshe's loyal disciple. He's the ultimate pupil, Yoshua bin Nun. And Moshe goes up to the mountain for 40 days. He takes Yoshua with him, who waits at the bottom of the mountain. And Moshe comes down the mountain 40 days later and says, I hear a noise in the camp, the golden calf going up. And Yoshua says, sounds like the sound of war. So Yoshua doesn't know what's going on in the camp. Why doesn't he know what's going on in the camp? Because for 40 days, he's waiting at the foot of the mountain. That's what you call loyalty. For those who have a dog, man, to understand this, a good dog, dog will wait for you. Doesn't matter how long, you wait. 
And that's Yoshua ben Nun, actually, the most loyal, devoted pupil. And not only is he a devoted pupil, he's also a great, he's a, he's a great soldier. He's the commander-in-chief of the Israeli Defense Forces. He's the one who fights Amalek. He's the one who's going to lead the battle and the people and the battles of, of Canaan. So that's Ephraim. And Menashe plays a very special place in Moshe's heart. That, of course, is the story of Benot Tzulavchad. The one thing Moshe wants in his life and didn't get was the opportunity to, to, take, to, to, to possess the land, or even to see the land. He wants to see the land. Sefer Hashem. But even before Sefer Dvarim, you get the sense Moshe wants to go, and God says, you can't go. You can see it, but you can't enter. Then you have a group of people. The, the children of Israel in general, in the desert experience, don't seem so anxious to possess the land. They seem often more anxious to return to Egypt. But the daughters of Tzolafchad are different, actually. The daughters of Tzolafchad said to Moshe, why should our father's portion be lost in the land? Give us our father's portion. Because their father died in the desert. And they feel their father shouldn't lose his portion. And they choose to argue. They're arguing for themselves, but they present the argument as an argument for their father. Moshe doesn't say to them, what are your motivations? Why do you want this? Why do you want the land? Doesn't say that. He actually advances their cause. It's interesting in the Chumash and Sefer Bamidbar, the difference between the two parallel stories in Bamidbar, which is Pesach Sheni on one hand and Benot Tzalafchad on the other. In each case, there's a group of people who feel disenfranchised. In the first instance, Pesach Sheni, where they were Tameh and couldn't bring the sacrifice, why should we be, Lama, Lama Nigara, they say, why should we be deprived? Moshe says, wait here, let's see what God has to say. So he's sympathetic. But in the second instance, Vatikravna Benot Tzavchad, Vayakrev Moshe Mishpatan, he actually brings their case before God. It's more than just let's wait here. He actually pleads for them because they represent for Moshe exactly what Moshe wants. Moshe understands that possession of the land is not just a piece of land for Moshe. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a connective to God. And therefore, when two of the tribes later on say, we don't want to be part of the land, we want to separate ourselves. Reuven and God, Miraglim too, what Moshe does is to connect them, he places those most deeply connected to the land with Reuven and God, which is Chasi Shevet Menashe. Because Menashe represents for Moshe a desire for land, a desire to connect to God through the material land. So when Moshe singles out blessings in Bezot Bracha, which is a function of his desert experience, which is a difficult one overall, but he singles out Joseph, who is both Menashe and Ephraim. Henry Vivot Ephraim, so Levi and Yosef, which is Menashe and Ephraim, are the main ones that Moshe singles out. Let me make one other point about Moshe's blessings, which is in line with what Ruthie had said earlier. Ruthie's my sister, by the way. Ruthie sitting in the land of Israel, in the Holy Land. Um, it's interesting that 
how Moshe chooses to be positive. It's interesting, the story of Reuven and God in the Chumash, without question, starts off in a very negative way. Because they don't want to cross over into the land. They prefer the, 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 the green grass, the cattle. They're concerned about their cattle and their material possessions. Opportunity to go into God's land. No, let the others go. And not only that, they don't even want to fight for the others. The others fought to, for their land, but they don't want to go over and help the other tribes possess their land, which is what ticks Moshe off right away. What, they're going to fight, you're going to stay here? That makes no sense. They fought for you. Why, should they have, why shouldn't you help them? So Moshe negotiates it out. So certainly in the story over there, it's Reuven and God. Because when they travel in the desert in groups of three, Reuven and God travel together. What's interesting is when Moshe actually in Sefer Devarim gives his blessings, when it comes to Reuven, Yechi Reuven v'yayamot v'hi metav mispar, it's like you might say in English, what do you think of so-and-so? He should live and be well. He should live and be well. Live and be well means can't stand the guy. And when nothing to do with him, live and be well. Yeah. That's Ruvain's blessing. They should be well, they shouldn't die out. But when it comes to God, actually, Ruvain's partner, then Moshe chooses to see it differently. Baruch Marchiv God. Blessed is the one who enlarges God, the tribe of God. A difficult phrase. He saw the first portion. For there, I believe the best interpretation is the portion of the ruler was, was hidden. In other words, the point is that Reuven and God, it reminds me in the beginning of the state of Israel, you had these kibbutzim on the border. And the kibbutzim on the border served a very important function. First line of defense. First line of defense. Moshe chooses to see God, the tribe of God, Reuven's partner, not in a negative way. The opposite. They took that first portion because they understood that the power of the ruler was not strong on the, on the margins. So they took these outposts on the margins of the land, first line of defense. So blessed is God, blessed is the one who would enlarge them. Yashar Koach, he says, to God. So he chooses to distinguish Reuven from God. When it comes to Reuven, he doesn't assign to Reuven any, 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 any deep motives. And the truth of the matter is, when you read the Chumash, you can see Reuven is wanting to be, you know, a, a, a big fish in a, in a very little pond. Reuven was stripped of the Bechora, not the leading tribe. Okay, I'll stay on this side of the, of the Jordan, where I'll, I'll be the main guy. The Moshe is not crazy about that. Yes, you live and be well. But Reuven's partner, God, the Moshe chooses to look at it in a, in, a, in a very generous way. Moshe gives a generous assessment of the tribe of God, which underscores the basic point that in Zot HaBracha, Moshe chooses to see things in a positive light. He's, 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 he has uh, criticized us for about 32 chapters or so. But when it comes to chapters 33, he chooses to see things a different way. And by the way, something's very interesting about actually, there are many things. I'll mention one of them. The death of Moshe is 
Moshe's death is mentioned several times in the uh, in the Torah. And it's mentioned, actually, the command to ascend the mountain and die is mentioned already in chapter 32. It's also described in chapter 34 at the very end of the Torah. And uh, in chapter 32, which is Pasha Hazinu, Pasha Hazinu, a song, a poem, is a warning. It's described as a warning. Warn the people what will happen. It describes the people who are, who are cared for by God, who, who, who reject God, and God's incredible anger at Israel, threatening to destroy Israel. If not for the fact that the enemies of Israel might take credit, God might even do it. Someday, God will avenge the blood of, uh, of God's servants. Right after the song of Hazinu, Moshe is commanded to ascend the mountain. God says, ascend the mountain and see the land. You will not enter the land. Chapter 32 of Devarim. You don't have to believe me when I say this, by the way. You can look it up yourselves, you'll see. Don't, don't believe me. Don't trust anybody when it comes to Torah. But it's there. Ascend the mountain and die on account of the sin, the trespass, ma'otembi. You can see the land, but you can't enter. Chapter 32. Then we come to the end of the Torah, Zotah Bracha, the very end. Moshe is told to ascend the mountain and to see the land you will not enter. But there the focus is what Moshe sees. He sees this, he sees Don, he sees Yericho, and you're able to see it. And there's no mention of sin. No mention of sin at all. Torah doesn't mention the sin. So in chapter 34, Moshe is a human being, it's finite. But he lives 120 years, he lives a full life. And he's able to see his dreams, which is a big thing, to see your dreams. And not only that, he has a pupil, Yoshua, his devoted pupil, and Yoshua teaches and the people do whatever God commanded Moshe. So Moshe lives on through his teachings, through his pupils, he lives on. And that's a very fitting ending for Zotah Bracha, which is all positive. There's nothing negative. It's always sad when Moshe's death is a sad event, but it's represented in two chapters very differently. In the chapter of critique, which is Hazinu, in the poem of critique, there it talks about Moshe's failure as a leader, his sin and consequences. But in chapter 34, which is all about blessings, it's much more about the positive. Of course, he's going to die, but he sees. He's able to see the land and his Torah lives on. That's chapter 34. Let me just conclude with the following observation about the Zotah Bracha. You know, so what I started with, the, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's very important to understand how to celebrate the holy days. And Simcha Torah is a wonderful example, at least in my experience, that for the most part, most people have no idea how to celebrate Simcha Torah. They think it's Purim. They joke around, they do this, Simcha Torah is a serious day, very serious day. In Israel, it's the same day as Shemini Yatzeret. It's all one day, Shemini Yatzeret. The idea that you actually complete the Torah is so awesome. And there's actually a special reshut. There's a very special reshut when, when one is called up to complete the Torah, Chatana Torah. The idea of completing the Torah 
And it's very fitting that it's on Sukkot. Shmini Yatzer is the last day of Sukkot, basically. It has its own identity, but it's fundamentally Sukkot. Sukkot, the Torah calls Chag HaAsif. The year of, in, the, the festival of, 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 of ingathering. And before Sukkot, of course, we have Rosh Hashanah. We have Yudim Midot, we have Srichot. Because before, before we can build the Mishkan in the Chumash, God has to give us uh, a way to, to, to reconcile, which is Yudim Midot. And right after Yudim Midot, which is Yom Kippur on our calendar, we have the holiday of Sukkot. Yom Kippur is about looking at the previous year and saying to ourselves, what, what didn't we do right? It is a year of, it is a festival, it's a, whole, a happy day, Yom Kippur, of making commitments. We start with Kol Nidre, actually, because Kol Nidre is very important. We have to understand that there are ways out of commitments, mistaken commitments. But Kol Nidre is not about breaking your promises. Kol Nidre is about making promises. It's about, for this new year, what do I want to do this new year? I understand that we are human and limited, make mistakes. What are my commitments for the coming year? That's what Yom Kippur is about. But we are reflecting on the past, on the mistakes that were made unintentionally, intentionally, under duress. People make mistakes all the time. And Sukkot is different. Sukkot is Chag HaAsif. Sukkot looks at the previous year from a different perspective and asks the question, what did we do right this last year? What we did right, we should try, we have to build on it. That's Chag HaAsif. That the 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 the, the, the haftarot for Sukkot are very instructive. Shmini Yatzeret Sukkot. It's about Shlomo talking about his father. My father started something. I'm continuing it. It's about building on the past in a positive sense, and that's how we end the Torah. Actually, after all the criticism, Sefer Devarim is a book of a book of criticism. Moshe doesn't spare us in any way. Moshe feels he's doing us a big favor by critiquing us throughout the book. This is what you did in the past. You can't continue this way. You have to change. You can't rely upon me. I bailed you out many times. I'm not going to be around, etc., etc. But the very end of the book, we want to end with blessings. We want to end on the positive note. What, what did we do right, actually? So Moshe singles that out. Moshe emphasizes that. Shevet Levi at the Egel. Benot Zulavchad, tribe of Menashe, Yoshua bin Nun. There are great moments. Yehuda's mentioned positively, but Salah from Shevet Yehuda. There were many accomplishments, and we choose to look at it on Simchat Torah, the end of the year, in a very, in a very positive way. So that's the, that's the ending that we have. Uh, and I will just conclude with one thought about blessings. The last Zotah Bracha, so the custom is to is the blessing of each tribe. And the very end of the blessing of the tribes, before you get to chapter 34, chapter 33, is how we start the Chatala Torah. It's very, very beautiful. And the last verse of that blessing of Moshe is this, Ashrei Yisrael You are so fortunate, Israel, who was like you? Am Noshab Hashem, a people redeemed by God, Magen a shield, who, uh, who helps you, Magen Ezrecha, and you shall succeed and be victorious, etc.
That's the last verse of the blessings of Rizot Tabracha. That last verse, that last piece of Moshe's blessings, we don't want to leave that, that verse. And in point of fact, we don't leave that verse. We mention that verse all the time. Ashrecha Yisrael mikamocha am Hashem when do we say that verse in our, when do we encounter that verse? All the time we encounter it. We don't realize it, of course, but we encounter it all the time. This is part of a much bigger shear I could give. My time is, I'll tell you where we say it. It's how we start our prayers every day. Call it the Amida, the Shlona Esrei. The first, the Shemona Esrei is all about, we are blessing, Baruch Hashem is a blessing for God, but actually, there's a reciprocal blessing embedded in that blessing. In, in several ways, but I'll mention one of them. How does that blessing end? The first blessing of the Amida, how does it end? The Chatima is Baruch Hashem, Magen Abraham. But prior to the Chatima, Me'ena Chatima, Melech Ozer, Umoshia, Umagen. God has three attributes, Ozer, Moshia, Umagen. Where does that triad come from? Melech Ozer, Umoshia, Umagen. Am Nosha Bashem, Magen Ezrecha. It's the last verse of Moses' blessings, which we, are, which we are recalling in our daily prayers. What we are aspiring for is reciprocal blessing. We want to be in a space where we feel we can bless God, at the very same time, receive God's blessings. So we are recalling at all times, in all our daily prayers, we recall the blessings. It's very important, actually, in entering into prayer to remember the blessings. Because there are often very dark times in life for the world, certainly for the Jewish people. There are many dark moments, and it's easy to despair. It's easy to give up look around the world and see what's going on. It's easy to say, you know, what, what is this? Hopeless. So we enter into Shemona Esri every day in the morning. Smicha gul gatfila. Before you pray, you say, Ga'al Yisrael. Talk about God's redemption. Because redemption is always a possibility. Whether it comes immediately or not, it's possible. And since it's possible, we don't give up. And our very first blessing of Magen Abraham, the shield of Abraham, we remind ourselves of the God who can be an Ozeru Moshiach Umagein. Magein Ezrecha Vashecherev Gavatecha. So those last verse of the blessing of Ezot HaBracha, we carry with us all the time. Should be a year of blessings for all of us and for the world. And uh, I want to say that the uh, pandemic, which has had some horrible, many horrible effects on the world and Jewish communities throughout the world, there's been one little silver lining Padrisha, which is that in teaching virtually, we just reach a lot more people and we can reach them all over the world. So we're going to be continuing with our classes at Drisha. I personally am teaching uh, a class on, on Abraham beginning a week from Sunday. And uh, I'm giving somebody I never taught before the a look at the Talmud Bavli's view of, of, uh, of uh, King David, looking at nine or 10 sugyot in the Bavli and how they, how they understand the David of Samuel and the David of Chronicles. I'm very excited about that course. Maybe I'll learn something new. Anyway, thank you for, for participating. Uh,
Chag Sameach for all of you. Rabbi Silver, do you yes. have a couple minutes for some questions? Yeah, sure, no problem. Okay, so there was one question that came in a little bit a, a while ago, okay. um, which was, hold on one second, now I have to find it. Is Moshe, this is going back to the brachos for Yaakov, um, is Moshe then ameliorating Yaakov's negativity towards Levi? Um, echoes of the fairy tale, Lamavirus Roha Gezera, of Maleficent in the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale. Um, so is, I don't uh, understand the end of the question. It's, it's referencing um, a fairy tale, Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent. She basically uh, alleviates the, the, um, the Gezera of death and instead puts Sleeping Beauty to sleep. Um, and so I guess that's one way of ameliorating the negativity or the, the curse. Maybe Ruth can, would like to speak up and, and explain it a little bit better. <laughs> I would say that the blessing that Yaakov's, I call it a blessing of of of, um, of Levi, Shimon and Levi. What, what Yaakov is saying is that Shimon and Levi, when they're together, there's a problem, and the only hope for them is to is to separate. In point of fact, that happens. Not Moshe's blessing is reflective of what took place over the desert, when Pinchas kills the head of Shimon. But be, but before that, uh, you have already Moshe himself is a Levi. Now, the first thing Moshe really does in life is actually to kill somebody. So he's a Levi, all right. Levi a killer, in Sefer Breshit, and Moshe's a killer. But the fact of the matter is, there's killing and there's murder, and there's situations where you have no recourse, basically. That's the story of Moshe. And what's interesting about Levi is how Levi becomes transformed, the tribe of Levi, through the kahuna, from those who are... Uh, you know, capable of killing, to the ultimate ones who represent non-killing. Shevet Levi, the Kohen becomes the, 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 the non-combatant, and the cities of the Levi protect somebody from taking vengeance, the Ari Mikwat. So I would say that Moshe's, uh, I don't think it's magic over here. I think that what happens is that Levi takes the opportunity when they separate from Shimon to choose a different path. And Moshe's blessing reflects that. Shimon, unfortunately, uh, didn't take a similar path as Levi. Shimon, uh, in the Chumash at least, uh, uh, really sort of disappears as any kind of positive force. So when it's about taking advantage, I think, of the situations, and Levi does that through uh, Moshe, of course, and then through Pinchas, where the Kahuna becomes redefined and that I will give, says um, uh, God, about Pinchas and his descendants, Briti Shalom, the covenant of peace. The ultimate peace, the, the ultimate peaceable people are the uh, Kohanim. They, they don't fight, they don't have weapons. Um, until you come to the Hashbonaim, that's certainly true in the Bible, that the Kohen is a, is a, is a, is a, is a non-combatant. That's the path that Levi chooses. So maybe Yaakov's critique I don't call the critique a non-blessing, it's a critique, but sometimes critiques are very useful. A good critique helps you move in the right direction. So we should be grateful for those that critique us. That being able to hear critique means you can't really get better. So Yaakov did, did us all a big favor. All right, Silver, there's another question that came in on Facebook from Charles. Uh, it seems that David and Shlomo, that it's an opposite psychology on Yosef's sons, not taking vengeance on uncles. So where Shlomo is the, where Shlomo is the son, Takes vengeance, father refrains. Uh, takes vengeance, the father refrains from it. 
I'm not, can you repeat the question? I don't understand. It seems that the David and Shlomo is opposite, is the opposite psychology of Yosef's sons, where they don't take vengeance on the uncles, um, where Shlomo is the son that takes vengeance on the father when the father refrains from it. Um, well, that's true. I mean, the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is that the description of Shlomo and, and David in the first two chapters of Mulachim is very problematic. It's true that the first thing Shlomo does to assure himself the throne in the Book of Kings is to, is to kill his brother. That's true. But it's also true that prior to David's death, he commands Shlomo to kill two people. So I don't think it's all about Shlomo. I think Shlomo's following in his father's footsteps. And, um, and yeah, and I think that there is that difference. And I think the, that Yosef not taking vengeance speaks very well for Yosef. I think that that the anger is still there, presumably, but from all sides. I mean, nobody's in the Joseph narrative, nobody's innocent, obviously. The guilt is shared by all, but the ability to overcome the uh, antagonisms and to become a people, I think Yosef certainly gets a lot of the credit for that. And the contrast to, you know, kinship is a political institution, has its own set of problems. But the point is well taken. There is that difference between the two stories. Um, okay, I'm going to stop there at this point. And again, and thank you all. Thank you all. And uh, just to reiterate what Rabbi Silver had said, Drisha is offering uh, 14 new classes starting right after Simplistora, Monday afternoon uh, with Dr. Shana Strauss-Schick. Uh, if you go through our website, www.drisha.org, and then forward slash classes, you'll see a list of all the 14 different classes uh, that are going to be offered starting October. Some of them begin in November and go through December. Um, so among the 12 courses, the other 12 courses that Rabbi Silver is actually not teaching, you're going to notice that many are organized around the theme of human dignity. So this past few months, as Rabbi Silver had, had touched on, the challenges of COVID and the implications of social distancing, and we also now have this renewed attention to inequity and discrimination, these all bring up the topic of human dignity into a, a much sharper focus. So Adrisha, we believe that studying the Torah's teachings on this theme and allowing the, the texts to really speak to us and contemplating our reactions to them, so that's an essential way to gain insight on the world and our role in it. So I do hope that you will come learn with us, um, Adrisha. And again, if you haven't yet registered for those classes, there is still time. They're free of charge. Um, and you can join us on Zoom, on Facebook Live, and on Drisha Live. All of the links are posted on the website. Thank you again, Rabbi Silber, for this wonderful lecture. And I'm really happy you had this opportunity to uh, give us some Torah during, during, uh, during Sukkot. Mo'adim l'simcha, everyone. And uh, I hope to see you online again very soon. Bye-bye.